let pass or die. And you're saying, what the hell does that mean? During the time of the Khan, this is during the Mongols, the Khan's emissary was given a bronze uh, pendant that had this this inscription on it, let my emissary three through or you will die. That's basically what it said. <laughs> let him pass, in other words. I'm a traveling man made a lot of stops all over the world and in every port I own a heart. All right, here we go. Back in bold. Another day, another dollar. Got a really neat guest here today who has a cool niche on Instagram and TikTok. I came across him because I think my feed knows I like to travel and he was about collecting vintage passports. And I was like, this is really interesting. So I started going through his page and he would like document the stories and where they went and kind of like the history behind passports. And I'm like, wow, this is something that's right up my alley. It's Ross with Vintage Passport Collector. I'm happy you're here. I'm very excited to learn about the history of passports, these stories you've seen, and maybe where the future of traveling is going with these type of documents. Ross, how are you doing? I'm doing well, Nick. How are you this morning? Not too bad, man. It's sunny out here in Poland. Life is good. After this, I have a nice, beautiful date on a Sunday evening. Drink a couple spritz. You know, I have some Polish food. I'm very happy. <laughs> well, I, I'm sure you're. It's, the weather's probably warming up there a little bit now. It's May. <laughs> Ross, where are you based out of, by the way? I didn't ask. I'm in the New York City area. New York City area. And you got into this passport collecting in uh, 1998, you said? 1998, I started collecting, and my first uh, exposure was on eBay. eBay. And why? Why did you get this bug? I mean, I, I probably went through 100 of your videos after I first saw it, so I can understand the kind of attraction towards it. But, you know, I'm a traveler, and right. uh, you have a traveling background. Why are you so into this uh, passport world? I'm more of a history buff, not as much of a traveler as some of your audience may be, but I like to trace um historical travel so for instance the stamps uh, the people who signed the stamps the actual uh the, the they used a lot of fountain pens back then different colored inks different types of signatures uh the passports actually tell a story and it tells the story of that person's life with respect to their travel abroad or within the country itself uh, my mind, uh, when I saw your page, went right to catch me if you can in forging documents and creating these fake passports and the, the dark world behind it and whatnot. And unfortunately, nowadays, it's quite hard with the little chip they have in, I mean, my United States passport. But I think uh, if you ever came across people like that with these passports that they're, you're like, OK, this maybe is a spy. This person is doing some crazy things or. Well, uh, there's two sides to that. One, there are people trying to sell IDs that are illegal and they approach myself and some of my colleagues on our web pages and we just kind of block them because we're not interested in promoting that or answering those or an just answering the question simply if I'm asked no I don't I'm not involved in that and the other side of it is um, is basically just you know having fun with a travel document that say might be counterfeit uh, most of the counterfeit stuff that you're gonna see that I'm interested in is World War II related so mm -hmm. I have a friend actually that has a counterfeit document from that time and they are very rare and very collectible uh, it's it's being able to spot it I, I can tell you also I've I've seen fake visas 
and uh, that were actually used to escape. Uh, in particular, I'll tell you one brief story. Uh, there are what they call people who issued visas just um, being friendly to people and trying to help them. And there were people who were issuing visas that were being paid money for it. So, for instance, in Paraguay and Vienna, in 1939, there was somebody in the Paraguayan embassy issuing what they call, you know, visas that were paid for so that people could actually get an exit visa out of Germany. That's just an example. Okay, so your journey, though. So you found it one day on eBay and you're like, wow, this is something that I want to create a hobby out of. Like, can you explain this process to me? It's it, In those days, it was a little more difficult. Uh, I, I've never really interviewed some of my friends who were older and how they acquired some of the stuff. Maybe they went to flea markets uh, in Europe. Uh, and found a lot of stuff. Uh, that's what made it way, its way to eBay. I was sort of a historical collector of coins and other things that I, I just thought, hey, this is really interesting and kind of niche and different. And uh, I'm a history buff in World War II in particular, and I was, I was focusing on that on eBay. Problem in those days was payment. Uh, you, there was no PayPal or any set up to send something electronically you had to send like an international money order and rely on somebody's honesty to <laughs> send you the item back so there there could be a little tricky in those days so having this electronic payment means definitely made it easier to collect was it a lot more rare to have a passport back in those days like you had to be someone of importance to, to leave oh, that's I'll tell you a story about that, at least in the U.S. case. This is interesting, and it's true. If you look up the name R.B. Shipley, R.B. Shipley, uh, she was the head of the U.S. Passport Agency from 1928 to 1957, and she ran it like literally, no pun intended, like a czar. In other words, you had to get past R.B. Shipley, who would sign off on your passport application before you were issued a U.S. passport. And it really irritated a lot of congressmen uh, because they could use that politically to their advantage for issuing documents for, let's say, special uh, diplomatic reasons. And so, yes, there were some restrictions in those days based on, say, the idiosyncrasies of a uh, functionary in the government. Uh, and before that, you people didn't have money to travel. So uh, if you go back into Europe in the 19th century or 18th century, it was usually somebody doing the government's work or a merchant traveling between cities. And uh, that's really how they were issued, you had to have some means of exchange or some money to buy this from the government issuing authority and be on good terms with them in those days. But a lot of the passports I've seen on your um, page seems like normal people, no? So oh, I mean, yeah, you get into the 20th century, travel became much more extensive, let's say after World War One. Right. So World War One kind of opened everybody's eyes that they could travel and they were they were starting to issue these like I was getting back in our pre conversation. Uh, photos weren't added to passports until 1915. They actually had international conventions on making passports like uh, regulated, uh, keeping them approximately the same size with the same purpose and countries signed that convention. So like after 1915, uh, there were photos added to the documents and they went more away from the portrait style eight, 11 by 18 single sheet uh, foldable documents into booklets that you have surrounding our, our uh, discussion today. So booklets started coming out around 1915 or so, and then that made it easier for people to carry and cross the border and protect the document. It wouldn't get wet or wouldn't get sweaty or, you know, the ink wouldn't 
smear or the stamps wouldn't smear as you were uh, passing from one border to the other. So it made the travel a little more uh, easier to do, uh, carrying a booklet. And after World War One, you know, with the Treaty of Versailles, all these European countries were reestablished that were once part of, say, the Austria-Hungarian Empire or the Greater German Empire or uh, Kingdom of Yugoslavia. They all kind of changed uh, after World War One. So you had this explosion of individual countries, small countries where you can get a travel document. I, I have a Montenegro passport from 1915, you know, in booklet style. It's very rare. Uh, and that's just an example. Small country. And so besides maybe there's a chip in the new ones, right? A kind of a little one in the USA passport. I mean, the, the passport hasn't changed much in the last, what, 50 some years. It's still that booklet, no? It's still the booklet, but around the year 2000 or so, they started putting chips in and they refer to that as biometric. So if you see the little little symbol underneath the name of the passport, that means it has a chip in it and it's a biometric passport. But I think in the future, those are going to disappear like we talked in the pre-interview and you're going to end up with a card with a chip in it and people will just cross borders or cross uh, zones using that card. What do you think about that, being a, a passport collector, about kind of the the future of tracking citizens and moving around? Is it better? Is it worse? What do you think? I think it's worse. <laughs> I think there's going to be nowhere you could go, even going and getting a bag of groceries, that they're not going to have their eyes on you if they already don't. So it's going to be uh, a little Orwellian, as I say. It, it, it seems to be moving in that direction. That's why you see, not getting out of the conversation of passports, this all this hullabaloo about, say, Elon Musk buying Twitter. Uh, so the media is, let's say, run by certain groups of individuals who want to present a, a narrative, and they don't really want to give you the full story. It's like that with anything. When the Russians talk about what they're doing in the war versus the West and their response, there's always some color to it, and it's hard to find what the real truth somewhere lies in between. Being um, this historian and uh, collecting these passports, what is your ideal world for traveling people like should we be able to cross any border we want stay as long as we want if we're not yeah, trouble? yeah that, that, sort of like what the schengen visa in europe represents right so if you're an eu member you have a passport let's say from poland who's i believe in the eu u.s doesn't have this but i'm assuming you can get a schengen visa on a u.s passport but mostly that's represented so that they can travel within the eu without having to present documents at every border crossing it's three months. Yep. So American yeah. gets three months and then you got to get out and you only you have to wait another 90 days to reenter. So you can't Correct. just leave, yeah, leave yeah. The, um, Turkey for a day or some something like that. But, you know, then you get away with things with like a work visa. Right. So right. Then you can extend it and whatnot. But I think the Schwangen zone is a fantastic thing. It is so nice being able to go to all these different countries and not have to go through um, customs and, and border patrol and all this crazy stuff. Like it's it's fluid. It is really nice. So. Your ideal world would there be, be no like a, that would be like a Schengen type identity card where you could pass between borders with less hassle. Put it that way. Oh, I agree. Let's tell me some stories, like some of the cool stories you have from these passports. Some people doing some like crazy, wonderful uh, travel experiences. You know, I think the, the the most interesting documents, at least from my perspective, I'll, 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 let's say, do not a World War II document was actually a trip around the world that a gentleman made in 1930. They used to have these trips that 
uh, major steamship companies would offer. In this case, it was Hapag Lloyd, which was a German line. And they had a world cruise in 1930. And this gentleman started it. it was, believe it or not, it was six months. Imagine if you're a traveler and some of your audience want to go around the world in six to seven months. They would give you a journal to start your trip. You'd leave from New York and they gave you a map of where all the ports of call was. Remember, there was no flying in those days. It was 1929, 1930. Flying was rare. So they would take boats and they would go literally from one place like the U.S. to, let's say, uh, Great Britain into France. And then from France, they would uh, go down uh, into the Mediterranean and then through the Suez Canal and into the eastern uh, part of the world and Asia. And they would stop at ports of call and they would uh, write down their experience in a journal. So I was lucky enough to find this gentleman's passport and his journal. And I put actually posted that in one of the videos. Yeah, I saw that one. That was wicked. Like they had little notes from each spot and, and yep. whatnot. Now, were these people very wealthy back then? Yeah, oh, yeah. I can only imagine what that cost. I'm guessing that trip was probably three to four hundred dollars and nineteen thirty dollars that was a lot today probably five thousand maybe equivalent what i no noticed too on your page was like uh war visas so visiting countries that were in the spanish civil war obviously right. the, the german stuff that you have a specialty right. in the people escaping but it was just kind of interesting how you know we think of this war and like it's a whole country thing, but a lot of people are still coming in and out doing business. Like in well, Ukraine, for example, they left that uh, road open for a long time and people were still leaving. And then you had the other people coming in from Poland. And can you say something about that, about, you know, going yeah, to war well, countries? There's different eras and different travel. Let's go back, let's say to World War One. They had what they call the zone of the armies. So I have several passports from that area where you couldn't travel where the zone of the armies were actively fighting, but you could enter those countries. Let's say if you were an American, it was 1916 and you want to go to Germany, how would you do it? British are fighting, the French are fighting. The U.S. wasn't at war with Germany yet. So what they would do is they'd go to England and then get a visa in in the Netherlands. They'd go to travel for, to the Netherlands because the Netherlands was neutral in World War One. A lot of people don't know that. And the Netherlands ended up being the secondary country that you could go into Germany or the or the uh, warring powers, but as long as you avoided the zones of the army. So that was like a restriction on World War One passports. When you talk about the S Spanish Civil War, there was restrictions on traveling to Spain or any of its possessions because active fighting was going on and people didn't want to be in a war zone. Uh, so they would restrict the passports travel to Spain in, let's say, 1937 or 38. With respect to World War II, uh, the combatants, uh, they wouldn't necessarily let anybody in. So if they were warring with one another uh, in World War II, you couldn't travel to the Axis power countries, which would, say, be Germany, uh, Austria, um, occupied, let's say, Yugoslavia, Hungary, Romania, uh, Poland, or the general government. You couldn't travel there during the war. You needed a special, either you were a government official and you were a non-combatant, like Swiss, neutral. And the Swiss would handle a lot of business. So one of my interests in passports, let's say, is finding documents where the Swiss acted as the diplomatic service uh, for that document. For instance, I'll give you an example. Um, a Polish passport issued in uh, Bucharest, Romania in 1943 is not going to be signed by the Polish consul. 
It's going to be signed by the Swiss consul acting in the interests of Poland and Bucharest, Romania, because there's a war or hostility between Poland and Romania because Romania was a German ally to a certain point. So finding those documents with those stamps are very interesting. Um, and even during, let's say Germany would not let you travel outside of its access zone unless you were a diplomat. And usually that was to a neutral country. If most of the German passports I have during the war, they either went to Spain or Portugal or Italy or, um, you know, the occupied areas that they had an influence in. They didn't go outside of that. It was rare to find a German passport, let's say from Colombia or going to Japan or going to China. It's just, you just didn't see it. I have them in my collection, but they're really rare. What are the holy grails of passport collecting? Is it like a president? <laughs> it like, depends what? on what people like. You know, your generation, they may like want to get, let's say, a holy grail, maybe a biometric passport from North Korea. All right. That's probably a rare one. Or from a postage stamp country like Liechtenstein or Andorra or or uh, San Marino, right? Those are interesting for modern passports or going to Tonga. Tonga is the hardest country to get a visa to go see modern day. Uh, you could look that up. Uh, but those are maybe things that your audience may like. If you go back in history, stuff that I like are more diplomatic passports that have a significance. For instance, I've got a passport of signed by, and it's his, uh, von Bethmann Helwig, and he was the German prime minister at the start of World War I. I have a Bismarck signed passport. I have um, a passport signed by Righteous Among the Nations. I have uh, all kinds of very interesting different historical documents that are related to more older historical situations. <coughs> I have a passport from the, I think it was either the second American uh, consulate in the U.S. history, 1798, the Hanseatic city of Hamburg. I have a U.S. passport from the George Washington administration from that. Very interesting. Ross, what do you think about passport um, collecting in a real sense? So uh, there's a lot of people talking about plan B options to keep your freedom and have oh. as many passports as possible. Yeah, you that's think, a... Uh, that's a whole separate thing. It has nothing to do with what I do historically, but I will touch on the subject because I have an Israeli collector friend who has second citizenships in Chile and Romania. Now you say, how did they get that? That's not a golden passport. He got that because he's Jewish and his family was uh, made to leave those countries during World War II. And each of those countries, well, not Chile, Chile he got because he has a relative that was from Chile and they allowed it. The Romanian one was because his family was expelled and um, and they they have a program that allows people who were expelled from the country to come back in certain circumstances to get a, a passport or a citizenship. Spain has that same thing too for right, um, the, Jews that got expelled. Yeah. Right. The golden stuff you're talking about are countries like Malta and uh, Portugal that if you invest half a million or a million dollars in, in a house in those countries and you live there for six months, you have the EU privileges. That's what people want. So there are some countries that are actively promoting it with, say, people that are getting older populations. You heard about Italy getting older, Portugal getting older, Spain getting older. So they want younger people to come in that have some money. They don't want somebody like that has no um, monetary, let's say, resources and give them a citizenship pathway that allows them to have the benefits of citizenship as a second country. 
Yeah, there's tons of programs now. Turkey just raised theirs from like two fifty to four hundred thousand, either buy real estate or put in a business. And I know in the yep. Balkans there's a ton too, but like the overall idea behind this. So like we talked about uh, the freedom to travel without having the Schwangen does a good job with it. So what do you think about someone that has five, six passports? I, I, it's more power to them. I listen. I wouldn't think that's a bad idea. I mean, there are some people that sell what they believe it or not. There's a sub market. Listen to this, Nick. I don't know if you've heard of it. A sub market of what they call fantasy passports. There are people who say they like own a country by owning an oil rig out in the middle of the North Sea, and they name it a country, and they'll sell you the passport to that little oil rig country, <laughs> and that you're a citizen there for a price. So there's some shenanigans, as they say, out there with these people who claim they have an independent nation and they're giving you a fantasy passport and if the border guards aren't too sharp they're going to say this is no value you know that's there was um i read this recently um like we're talking about with the jews in germany or like let's say you're an american in a country that uh despite like in the middle east or something crazy right and there's these passports that are like fake passports but their names look similar to some sort of country or a country that was in the past and it's like used to like possibly in the past to just get by without showing your American uh, oh, no, passport. No, 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 no. They're much stricter nowadays. They would spot that. Like all the stuff that I have, this is where the controversy, why I've been banned from TikTok three times and not Instagram. Instagram's a little more open. They don't let, I don't like censoring the documents and I'm not a neo-Nazi or anything like that because I'm Jewish for Christ's sake. But the thing is that um, I like showing the history, but in, in, in TikTok, because it's a, it's an AI driven program you can't like get an exception it's such a large platform that they don't they're like behind they're growing so fast they don't have enough people to police it properly so i actually have a member on my tiktok page who shared this with me he worked for them at one point and he said the reason ross you're getting banned is because you're in a guidelines violation showing an id or personal information even if it's 150 or 200 years old they don't care because they never made a historical exception in their policy to prevent me from being banned all he could say was just keep posting and opening new accounts but TikTok makes it a little difficult because you have to put a new email and telephone number with each account and when you've been banned before you can't use that telephone number or prior email so after a while you run out of telephone numbers you run out of e you don't run out of emails but telephone numbers to open new uh, TikTok accounts. So I have lost three and I have two current ones, a primary and a backup. And the uh, primary has 3,000, no, no 4,000 followers now. I lost my last one at 18,500. I had one with 68,500. I had one with 12,800 that were three previous ones that were banned. The current one has no violations. So I'm thinking maybe so far, at least a month into using it, TikTok may be changing their policy or may have flagged me and said, hey, listen, this guy is not trying to sell anything. He's just trying to show a historical document. Maybe they're leaving me alone, but I don't know. It's too early to tell. Ross, though, do you know what I'm talking about? They're those passports that were like made up countries or older countries that people used to have just in right. case there's a problem if they were an American. That's a whole thing, right? That, that's not a real that's not a realistic thing like taking out let's say a 1950s u.s passport first of all you're not going to be able to get the photograph off of it to, because you have to you know you're not going to use a passport before 1915 because people are going to say this is obsolete any border uh person is going to see that they're not going to let you go through is that a legitimate document because it would be really hard to redoctor that 
and then looking at visas that may be on it from 1912 or 1913. That's not realistic to use. But not the ones you're talking about, though. I'm talking like um, those made up oil rig countries or. Oh, yeah, like yeah, yeah. You can buy can, for your own. They'll catch country. that. They'll catch that because uh, they're, they're going to say, what's this? I mean, there's some countries that you can maybe try to get away with that. That would. Like, I'm trying to think of one that changed its name. Let's say. Let's say you made a, uh, let's say Zimbabwe, right, was once Rhodesia, right? Let's say you made a Rhodesia passport. You may be able to get away with that one if you go to some particular place where they're not sophisticated enough to know the difference, right? Rhodesia was a country, but it's now Zimbabwe, right? Or let's say you get a passport from Zaire, which is, was con was is Congo, right? And Zaire doesn't exist anymore. What if you made an African Zaire passport and try to pass it off as something you know, it's a fake document. So I guess you could do that and maybe get away with it. But like the oil rig countries or the sultanate of uh, of uh, Sir John the bathtub, you know, that's not going to go anywhere. <laughs> but uh, the, the ones that had previous names, maybe, you know, maybe you can make a passport with the protectorate of Bohemia and Moravia, which was the German occupied portion of Czechoslovakia in 1939 and make a passport of it modern wise and try to get away with it. Interesting. So, Ross, why did you decide one day, hey, I'm going to start doing TikToks and Reels um, and posting out there? I mean, you, you um, are uh, an I'm, older I'm, gentleman. Or right. I'm, 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 an, I'm 62, but 62. you okay. could be my son. And I, <laughs> I also actually liked staying young doing this. You know, I mean, to me, I'm, I'm not like ready to go dig a six foot hole and lie in the graveyard yet. So for me, it's a challenge to do some things on the internet, being an older generation fellow, uh, a boomer. But, um, you know, I still enjoy it and I want to share these things with people and the stories before I end up planted in the ground. I do know that some of my collection will probably end up in a museum somewhere when I go. I actually had someone reach out to me. I posted a Romanian diplomatic passport from who was the, he was the ambassador to North Korea in 1952 which is very rare. And the relative reached out to me on IG and asked me how I came up and got that. And I acquired that from a collector in Israel who got it from a European collector. He bought 12 of them. They must have got them from some, I don't know, maybe an archive possibly. And they sold them to a European and the European sold them to my uh, Israeli collector friend. And I ended up with four of them, including this one. And so if she calls me back, what I'll probably tell her is just stay in touch with me. If, if something happens to me and you give me your address, I'll just leave it in my will for you and your family to have when I'm gone. That's a better solution than people arguing and saying, no, you're never going to get this. But if it's a family member, they give me their address and number and I'll try and keep in touch with them. I'll leave it to them at some point. So one day you just decided, hey, I'm going to put this out there. Do you have help? Or, I mean, because what, what I'm curious about is it's a really cool niche. You know right. what I mean? Like, yes, I can it is. It. I'm like, yeah. this, is, this is wicked. Like, this is a right. good idea. So right. I'm thinking, like, how did you decide to say, hey, I'm going to go on the Instagram and do this? Well, you know, I started on Facebook. I, if any of your listeners are listening, I have a Facebook blog called the Passport Collector Group. That's my Facebook Facebook blog. And I started it during COVID. So this started all around COVID time because, you know, my, I'm, my profession, I'm a physician. So we couldn't really go see patients or go into the hospital. It was like all closed down. Literally, my 
I was seeing patients from home on a computer like this. We weren't allowed to interact. So I said, all right, so I'm going to start something different. Let's start. I called my friend in Israel. I said, let's start a blog on Facebook and invite our friends to join the blog. And we enjoyed the, we joined the blog. This is like uh, maybe March of 2020, around the time when we're closing everything down here in the U.S. And um, it grew to about 100 to 200 followers during COVID. And then I said, you know, if I can do this on Facebook, why don't I try it on TikTok and Instagram too? I, I already started an Instagram page, but I had to edit it. It was not really a passport page, although I started it probably in 2013 or 14 or 15 when Instagram started and I posted like five or six documents, but it got no traction. It was just like, I maybe had five followers. There was nobody on it. So I, I edited it, took off all the old old images and started doing videos on it. This is after I started TikTok and I upgraded it. And then I started paying for advertising. And this is the trick is that I think I'm sh some of these platforms, they really want money and uh, they shadow ban you or, or depress your numbers if you're not paying for some advertising. So I noticed like every five or six weeks, I got to throw them 30 bucks for a five or six day ad, and then my numbers go back up again. So I think there's a little chicanery going on there. But to answer your question, I started with the Facebook blog, and then I branched out to TikTok and Instagram blogs. And that's where I am. And I and I the Instagram blog is original. They never ban that. They don't sanction it. They only sanctioned one of my videos. You may, you may have seen one of my lives. I do some lives on it once a week or once every two weeks. And I call it a passport collect and review. And uh, they don't they, they they banned one of my lives. They said, oh, no, no, we don't want this is like private information, you know, IDs. That's the reason. But after that, they didn't. After that, they stopped. So I only had one instance on Instagram where they wanted to ban something. Other than that, TikTok's been the most problematic platform for me with respect to guidelines, violations, and losing accounts. TikTok is more interested in promoting wild, crazy stuff to, to Americans than interesting history and, and whatnot, like your account. It's, it's weird. All this social media, it's, it's very interesting. But, uh, yeah. Ross, what are some some like really bold or interesting facts about your hobby and what you've learned from it that would like really spark my interest to, to look more into your page and also maybe get some passports on my own. Well, you know, it, it's, it, it really depends on, there's a whole like uh, continuum of this type of collecting. Some people just, you know, I've seen sites where just people with modern documents, all they do is share their passport stamps right from very rare places let's say they got a Liechtenstein stamp or a Tonga stamp and they share them on a blog they don't care about the documents or the person who holds them they just want the entry and exit stamp right that's what's interesting to them or the visa a rare visa and there are some people who like that those rare visas or who sign those visas or the travel involved in getting out of a particular situation or like we talked about earlier the worldwide uh, cruise uh, so uh, in terms of my pages, um, I'm not going to, if people, I think you can get a little bit of everything. If you like visas, there's simply some interesting visas in my pages, but they're not really modern. They're not stuff really post year 2000. It's all older stuff. If you're interested in countries, certainly my page would be an interest because I present Liechtenstein, San Marino, North Korea. Getting a North Korean passport is very rare. Those are unusual. I've been to San Marino. San Marino. San Marino amazing. too. I have one San Marino. I have one Liechtenstein in my club. These are very difficult to find and get. I do not have Andorra. I do not have um, 
there's one more of the postage stamp countries. It's Andorra, Liechtenstein, San Marino, and Monaco. I don't have Monaco. I, I can tell you a story. This is interesting. I won't tell you who it is. I, I visited a friend or a collector friend in Romania, and in my hands, he acquired, I don't know how he got it, the, uh, you heard of Prince Rainier who married uh, Princess Grace, right? All right, that was uh, in Monaco. Uh, she, this is in the 1950s, and uh, they both since passed away. Prince Rainier's father, this collector, had his Monaco diplomatic passport from 1925. <laughs> That's really rare, right? But you were saying things that I, what, what are most valuable things that I would say to collect in terms of rarity and interest? Anything signed by George Washington or President Jefferson, the early United States is very rare and very expensive. Uh, I actually own, and it was very expensive, a, um, uh, a Queen's Messenger passport. The, the king and queen of England use a team of 12 messengers to carry their business for the British Empire around the world. And I have a 1953-52 Queen's Messenger passport that's completely filled with visas. And it was used during the time of the whole destabilization of Iran because the holder was traveling in and out of Iran. So I can only imagine the politics going on there. But I do have one of those in my collection. Uh, so there are certain things on your bucket list that you want to get if you're like me. Uh, I have many. Uh, I, I'm, I guess my bucket list would be more escape documents, personally speaking, that have interesting travel. Uh, but for other viewers of your blog, like I said before, it could be just that you have that country's passport or that you have an interesting visa or maybe even an interesting passport photograph. Somebody just like to collect the photographs that are in the documents because back in the 1910, I'm sorry, 1914 to 1925 period, there were no standardized guidelines for photographs. So there are pictures of people with their pet dog on their passport. Can you imagine? <laughs> doing that today, having their dog at their side and having it in their passport, or whole families like mother, father, two children in the same passport. That's not seen as much. So people might like that. Everybody's different. Hey, so that's what I'm interested. You're really into the escape passports, right? But then when I brought up the catch me if you can, the multiple fake passports, it's like right. a sore subject for your guys' um, area, obviously, because it's fake. Right. But so what is the consensus on the forgery of documents if in some situations it saves lives too they're, 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 they're very there are i'm sure like it's i've had the discussion with my israeli collector friend and basically we talk about uh about that a lot and he has several counterfeit documents used for escape purposes and other reasons so yeah uh, it, it, they're, they're collectible if you can prove it's a counterfeit and used for a certain purpose, uh, they're very, very interesting. I agree with you on that. It's just that they're very hard to find. And even some of my experience looking at documents, I, I can't spot them sometimes. I mean, I'm, I'll give you just one example in my collection. It may be fake. My Israeli friends um, traded me for it. Uh, it's an Austrian passport from 1986, and it may have been given to a KGB officer because I have his KGB ID. So he it's it's a, uh, a I guess an Austrian national working for the KGB. So that was something interesting, like you're talking about the like Cold War spy stuff. Um, my Israeli friend actually has a group of passports. I really can't 
com comment on some of the specifics of it, but it was used for a Mossad operation. So I'll leave it at that. He has some of that in his collection. That's what's super cool, though, about your hobby is there is so many stories to all these passports and you can like, you know, envision in your own head or kind of like it's like a movie playing that it's pretty interesting. That's why I mean, I was enamored with your page when I first found it. So I think it's it's very neat. What are the costs of these passports? By oh, the, these? oh, you can get documents. I mean, some people can get really rare documents for twenty five thirty dollars you know just they just don't know what they have the people selling it it's almost like when you go to a flea market you find a a saison and they didn't know it was a saison and they come up with a gem you know and there's other places that know what it is and sell it for a lot of money so uh, a george washington ship passport that's usually the ones they signed a lot in the time of the early united states they go for four or five thousand dollars each or let's say a celebrity i didn't even get into that with you nick celebrity passports okay lou gehrig the famous baseball player he his passport went for fifty eight thousand dollars john f kennedy's passport from 1939 right that went for sixty four thousand dollars so some of these uh celebrity documents are very very expensive probably the most expensive ones in the hobby yeah, I think that would be really cool to see like a Bismarck signature or a George Washington, like a real signature. I think that is uh, that would be cool piece to have. Definitely. Well, I, I have a James Monroe signed document and I have um, one that's signed also by one of the founders. What's Madison? I have a Madison signed document. I don't have a Washington or a Jefferson. They're really tough. I've got um, Seward, remember uh, Secretary of State Seward, who made the deal for Alaska with the Russians. I have a signed 1861 passport from Seward. Uh, I don't have a Lincoln document. I'd love to get a Lincoln document, but they're really hard to find. I've got even a, I have a Confederate. Uh, this is interesting. Have you seen the movie Lincoln? Uh, which one? It's, it's there a lot? The, the one that's with Daniel Day-Lewis. He, he played Lincoln. He was very good. It was okay. like a couple years I think years I might have seen that a while ago, yeah. All right. There's a scene in there where the, he meets the three Confederate minister, uh, uh, ministers in, on a paddle boat on the Mississippi to settle the war in January, February of 1865. And this movie is really about the 13th Amendment, voting for it. And the, 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 the counselor said, we're ready to go back into the Union. Uh, provided you don't vote on this, right? And Lincoln turned them down. But the thing I wanted to point out to you, there were three ministers sitting at the table. One was E.A. Campbell. One was um, Vice President, uh, what's the name? Uh, it wasn't, it was the Vice President of the Confederacy and a Congressman from the Confederacy. But E.A. Campbell, one of the three of their, H.T.M. Hunter was the other guy and the Vice President of the Confederacy. I have a signed uh, safety pass uh, uh, by E.A. Campbell from 1864. So the guy in the movie who's portrayed in the movie, I have a signed document from him allowing a British citizen to cross the Confederate lines into Union territory to catch a boat to go back home to England. That's really great. Uh, that is interesting. I, I totally forgot to ask, what were they, before the passport, before these books, what were they using, like a, a signed document from the king or queen? Oh, no, travel? actually one of, you know, I have a collecting colleague that sometimes we don't see eye to eye with, <laughs> but he published a book and it's called live. I think it's called let, pa let pass or die. And you're saying, what the hell does that mean? During the time of the Khan, this is during the Mongols, the 
Khan's emissary was given a bronze uh, pendant that had this this inscription on it. Let my emissary three through, or you will die. That's basically what it said. <laughs> Let him pass. In other words, interesting, sure. right? Yeah, before, I mean, back in those days, I mean, it was basically on your own, right? Like, if you want to cross borders, you're going to, if you die, you die. Right. There, right. That's yeah. there was no real formal border crossing. Everything, I mean, I guess they would, remember, everything was very, you're, look, you're talking about, like, a lot of agricultural-based society, very primitive manufacturing. It was like, you live, you're talking about the time when people lived in castles, like you're looking at, um, what's that movie that was really Game of Thrones type time? You know, you, you, you maybe had a signed document that you carried with a wax seal that you gave to people who asked you questions. That was pretty much it. Yeah, I, I think I saw and this was like um, it was Hitler, I think Stalin and someone else about all the countries they visited in their life. And I visited more countries than them. And well, they like, didn't go anywhere. These dictators yeah. were afraid to travel. I mean, look at Kim Jong-un right now. He only goes really to South Korea, China, and Russia. He won't fly anywhere because they're afraid once they leave, either they'll bomb, you know, poison them or they're playing. Okay. They don't go anywhere. They don't want to travel. Hitler was actually, believe it or not, Hitler's interesting story. He didn't travel abroad that much, but man, he flew a lot which was very unique for politicians back then. In the 1930s, when he was trying to come to power in the late 20s, 1928, 29, 30, 31, 32, he flew to rallies, all right? Uh, so he was flying extensively. And there's a famous video of him going to Paris in 1940 after the French surrender. It's the only time he left Germany to go to Paris. He didn't go, he would go to Italy. He visited Mussolini in Italy. So I'd say that Hitler went to France and he went to Italy and he was from Austria and he went in his wartime activities. He traveled to where you are in Poland. He traveled to near Smolensk, that area of, uh, of, of Russia or Ukraine. So he did travel he went to finland and met mannerheim um it's it's just that he didn't go far like he never went to japan you know he didn't go to the united states he didn't go to great britain that kind of stuff and that, that was my point like these european kings back in the day like nowadays your average person can go see more of the world than they ever could which is that's correct it, it was dangerous you know it was hazardous to travel you traveled over land remember people got infections they got sick they you know people died from simple stuff that people have treatments for today they didn't live as long so there was a lot of hygiene issues and uh food preparation issues and the elements i mean they just didn't travel because it wasn't conducive to safe travel yeah and my other point was too, like that was only a hundred some years ago too. Like with yes. the, the Hitler and Stalin, it's yes. you know, how much it's changed now. It's it's, it's all it's all because of electricity and modern plumbing. I <laughs> think about that comes down to those two things. <laughs> hey Ross, before I let you go though, what is the the most traveled passport you have? Person the most, has the most traveled. Um, yeah. I, I can't say I have a most traveled, but I can say I have several passports that have extensions on them it wasn't uncommon that if you used up the 32 48 or 60 pages in a standard document that they the issuing country or consulate would attach pages to the back of it with a wax seal and basically add visas to it or in the u.s's case 
they would pretty much glue an extension like an accordion like extension onto the edge of the page so you could pull it out like an accordion i've got a, a one of my favorite passports is a u.s diplomatic courier from 1948 it was only used for one year literally it's this thick i don't have it to show you here but man, if I open that up, every page has an accordion extension. It's fascinating. Uh, that stuff, if I see it, I buy it right away. I have a lot of documents, maybe two dozen that have these extension-like uh, added pages in it. Oh, the, sometimes they used to actually attach a second passport to the first one. So if you're interested in that, they would punch a hole through it. They'd tie a ribbon and a wax seal, and you'd have what you'd call a double passport. So in other words, they run out of pages in Passport 1, they go to their consulate, they give them Passport 2. Sometimes they would make a notation, like in Polish passports, this happens more frequently in 1930s, is that they'd go, the traveler was issued this passport based on a prior passport number XYZ. And they'd note that in the document and maybe return it to them or they would put it in the foreign ministry for, uh, for reference, I'm not sure. But that's what the polls did in the 1930s. That was my question. Is um, so was it always like that 10-year thing, or wasn't it back in the day you had to do it like every year or for certain things? Well, either they run out of pages or the passport expire. Let's go into passport expiration. Some countries would give you a passport that would be emergency use and would be good for only one month. Some would be six months. Most would be at least a year before it would have to be renewed and on, in the outside area two to five years that's a german ones were two to five years depending on your travel and the time it was issued six months and i have a world war one a couple of world war one documents that were only good for one month uh, a u.s passport in particular and they had to renew it uh, when they traveled to their destination Great. I, I'm going to do a little conclusion here. Unless you have, do you have any other quick uh, things that would be of interest? Not, not in particular, but if you ever want to think of other things and you want to come back and re-interview me, you're more than welcome. The other thing is if you can make a recording of this, I can actually post it on Instagram if you like. Totally. I will get you that and uh, that would be fantastic. And I'll chop it up and do some different videos. And of course, I'll leave the a black face, right? You don't want to show your a, a black. No, no, I don't mind doing the interview just like you have it. Okay. Wonderful. Awesome. Ross, I appreciate you coming on today. Um, your, your page is very neat. It has inspired me. It's uh, the, the history behind it. I might start going to flea markets here and try to sell you a couple of passports. So. I would love that. Let me, let me give an unselfish plug to my, my pages. So if anyone needs to reach me, they can email me at vintage.passport.collector at gmail.com. You can join my Facebook page. If you're on Facebook, look for the Passport Collector Group. And the other two sites are my TikTok page, which is the Passport Collector Guy. And on my Instagram, it's vintage.passport.collector on Instagram. Thank you, Nick. Yeah, wonderful. I'll put that in the bio and I uh, hope people check it out and, and get into it and catch the bug like uh, like I did. So, Ross, hey, I appreciate you coming on. Enjoy the rest of your uh, Sunday and uh, we'll be in touch. Thanks. All right. You have a blessed day and stay well.